0: And you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com/slash/slash film.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash film Daily for Tuesday, February 12th, 2019. On today's show, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the Water Cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad, uh, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Y-Tran Bowie.
2: Hey, everyone.
1: And Chris Evangelista. Hello. So uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. Jacob is still sick. Are you feeling any better, Jacob?
3: I am operating at about 70% today, so I'd say that's an improvement.
1: We're recording this a little earlier than normal, uh, so that's we can uh, get you before uh, the meds hit.
3: So, yeah. Yeah. So, fed time a little bit later on. So Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, let's start with what we've been doing. Uh, this week, I went to DreamWorks Animation in Glendale. They have this beautiful campus, uh, which like seems like an o- oasis, uh, you know, hidden between the concrete of Los Angeles. And uh, I interviewed the filmmaker uh, of the How to Train Your Dragon series, Dean DuBois, and uh, about the new film, The Hidden World. And that interview will hit uh, the week of release, which I think is next week or the week after something like that Um, next week yeah. yeah next week uh so yeah look out for that i did uh we talked about last week on the podcast uh i was uh answering a question about tracking movie or how we track movies and i mentioned that there isn't a good way to track TV shows, and I got a ton of responses. We'll probably read in a later edition of the mailbag. But uh, one, of the, a lot of them seem to suggest this website called Track tracked.tv, and that's T R A K T TV. I'll link it in the show notes, and this is basically like letterbox for TV. Um, there's a a bunch of apps that like, they're not like Letterboxd where they have a a track TV app, but there's a bunch of apps that, uh, they, they make their API open for anybody. So there's a ton of apps that like are using their API. Um, but I spent a couple days going through the history of every TV show I I've seen and, uh, marking it as, watched or you know rating it and uh this app is very cool um it does almost everything i like that letterbox does and um it's uh <laughs> at the end of the day you can actually like look at like how many hours of tv you've watched total in the history <laughs> of uh you know your tv watching yeah they give you fun things like they they'll do like a year in the re- review showing you like all sorts of stats of what you've seen that year but it will also give you your all time totals, so so far, I haven't probably logged everything i've seen, but i've gone I've spent a considerable amount of time on here. I've watched ten thousand eight hundred and forty hours of television Oof. and that's uh eight that's almost nineteen thousand episodes. How so, many of
4: those are your repeat watchings of Cobra Kai? Oh, I didn't log repeat log uh watchings so oh, uh, worse than that,
1: yeah, it's much worse than that that's just. That's too much work, Brad. That's too much work. Um, But apparently, the show that I probably watch the most is Shark Tank. 300 episodes? 250? Yeah, that's a ballpark. Yeah. Anyways, uh, I am derailing this podcast. Brad, what have you been doing this week?
4: Uh, So, following in the footsteps of uh, Chris recently, I decided to revamp my movie shelving system. Um, I've had a, a media shelf for some of my movies, um, that I've held onto actually since college. It's, it's been relatively durable, uh, durable this entire time. Um, and then I had a new one that I bought a couple years ago that wasn't quite as good as I hoped, but it worked for the time being to house, um, my, my collection of movies together. But in the, the most recent move, I noticed that they were, had become a little bit flimsy and I really didn't, didn't like, like the idea of using them at, at my, Uh, New residents, so I decided that I was going to get some new shelves. So inspired by uh, Jacob's uh, barrage of Billy shelves that he has from Ikea that perfectly house his movies and TV shows, uh, I picked up a set of them from Ikea in order to house my movies. And then it also caused me to kind of change how I keep them organized because uh, since I previously had two media shelves that um, easily housed both my Blu-ray and DVD collections, I kept them separately, so I had one was just full of my Blu-rays, the other one was just full of my DVDs, but now that I have this these three new Billy shelves, it was much easier for me to just combine the Blu-rays and DVDs into one massive collection. So it took some time because, first of all, I had to move them from my uh, office where they were just stacked up um, on on top of shelves that I'm still waiting to get full of other things. Um, so I had to bring them to the shelves, and then I had to go back and forth between the Blu-rays and DVDs in order to alphabetize them properly because I alphabetized my movies. So that was a long, tedious process, but it's worth it. I like the way that it, they look on the shelves. Wait, wait, uh, the, wait a
1: second. Do you put TV and movies together?
4: No, the TV the TV shows are still separate, but I don't have a huge... Uh, anywhere near as big of a collection of TV shows as I do movies. It's it, I, I have significantly fewer TV shows than I do movies. So those will be separate probably on like one of my uh, Kallax shelves that I have from Ikea. Um, but yeah, so I, I like the way it all, it all looks now. It, it makes the library look neat and, and orderly. Um, and but it also allowed me to kind of purge my collection a little bit because um, I had like 10 or 15 movies on DVD that I had rebought on blu-ray but uh, either forgot about or didn't realize so now I'm getting rid of those DVDs and then I also went through and kind of uh, reduced the number of movies that I had a little bit because I as I went through there were some movies that I owned that either I bought like in order just to watch them uh, instead of renting them because they were cheap or that I've just accumulated over the years from either a friend giving them to me or, or something like that and there're movies that I wouldn't really see myself like watching and being like, Oh, I need, I, I really want to see this again right now. Uh, so I'm getting rid of like another stack of maybe like of between like 30 or 40 movies that I just don't need anymore.
1: Okay. Uh, and you also went to a birthday party.
4: Yeah. So, uh, we two of my friends had birthdays this week. So another friend of mine planned this little get together where we went out to dinner, um, in this, uh, like a kind of, it's kind of like the banquet room of this of a restaurant, um, here in our town and put together this Bob Ross themed birthday party where it was like, you know how they have those wine and canvas things where you go and you drink wine and then, and then paint with your friends. This was kind of like that, but it was just uh, us, a group of friends doing it. And so we each had like a little canvas and we watched a Bob, Bob Ross video and tried to replicate it. Uh, and it just reaffirmed what I've known for years since high school, which is <laughs> I'm a terrible painter. Um, I'm, I'm not too bad at drawing, uh, but when it comes to paint, I just I cannot get a grasp on the properties of of color or brush techniques or anything. I, I was trying to do what Brad Baross was doing, and it was terrible. It, it was a this uh, picturesque mountain landscape with trees and a, and a lake and and clouds. Uh, and it, it started off kind of okay. We were using oil paintings, which is also a little difficult um, because they're they're wet and it gets hard to to blend them and. Um, eventually I just went rogue and turned my mountain into a volcano and put lava on it and everything. So it was, it was real bad.
1: <laughs> Brad, have you posted a photo of this painting on like oh, your no. Instagram?
4: No, 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 definitely not. I, I did take a picture. Uh, I have not posted anywhere, but, um, it's, it's kind of embarrassing, but maybe, maybe I will post it. <laughs> P-
1: people want to see this. Um, <laughs> Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. yeah. Okay. HT, what have you been up to?
2: I went home for the weekend for Lunar New Year celebrations. So Lunar New Year was about a week ago, it was on the fifth. So this I went home um, on the weekend after to uh, in, indulge in some festivities and lots of great Lunar New Year food. Um, in Vietnamese, it's called Thet. So um, I didn't have anything have any celebrations when I was here in New York, but uh, I ended up I my mom has instilled in me some kind of, some superstitions that I try to uphold a little every year. Uh, so there's, like, the, you have to have a clean home and a, like, clean self when the new year arrives or that it will accumulate in bad luck and stuff. So whatever you do on the new year, the day of the new year will basically, like, um, uh, indicate what your luck will be for the rest of the year. So I'm a, I'm, I'm always a little bit... <laughs> um, cautious whenever I do something on the new year. Like my, I remember my mom, uh, when I was young would be, would ask me to not come home at midnight, uh, of the new year, because otherwise i would be the first person in the door. And the first person in the door is usually, uh, the indicator of who will be, will be the indicator of what your luck will be as well. It's like, if they're a good person, they'll bring good luck to your home. And apparently I was not worthy of that. So. <laughs> um, she would always be like, get home before midnight. We're having your uncle come be the first person in the door thing so uh, i went home and um i, had I don't some get
1: this hd like are you bad
2: luck apparently this is because she will ask her why and she's like well first of all you're always late to things And i'm like what does that mean i'm like <laughs> a l- unlucky person
1: i feel like this um, is traumatizing
2: i know <laughs> But um, I mean, with my apartment, I was the only person who could go in and out um, apart from my roommate. So I was I was the first person for my roommate, roommate. So we'll see how the luck holds up in my apartment this year. Who knows? <laughs> um, but yeah, I went home and uh, just had um, lots of great food. We exchanged those you know, red envelopes that uh, you might have seen that uh, contain money. Um, and, uh, I still am getting them despite being an adult with a job now. So I'm very happy. (laughs) I'm still getting them from my, um, parents and aunts and grandma. So, um, those are usually also supposed to be a bringer of good luck as well. And when I was young, it was my only source of allowance. So now I have income and this, uh, lucky envelope. So it's a great time overall. And I was just happy to see, uh, my parents and, um, relatives again for the new year.
1: Very cool. Ben, what have you been up to?
0: Uh, I had a chance to visit the Warner Brothers lot on Friday. I saw some early footage from Shazam, which is DC's upcoming superhero movie. I wrote a big thing about that. I got to talk to David F. Sandberg, the director, and Peter Safran, the producer. Um, uh, you know, in like a group setting. So maybe we can link that in the show notes and people can check that out. Um, uh, that went up on the site yesterday. And then on Monday, a week ago, or actually a little bit over a week ago now, I went to the L.A. premiere of a new movie called The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot, which is like one of the most ridiculous titles uh, that you'll probably here this year. Uh, this movie stars Sam Elliott uh, as the titular man who does this. It's set in like the late 1980s, and it's got sort of like an alternate history. He actually does kill Hitler, and that's how World War II ends. Um, but in this world. The his his act was sort of uh, covered up by the government. So, um, you know, everybody, everybody else who's living in this world thinks that the war ended the way that it did in our world. Uh, But then years later, he is called back into action to take out the Bigfoot in Canada because this, this creature is, is posing a, uh, like a biological threat to the world. Uh, it sounds way more ridiculous than it actually is. The, the title and the the premise sounds kind of, um, you know, like this pulpy grindhouse kind of movie. Uh, and it's really not that it's, it's a very slow, um, you know, like poignant sort of meditation, um, on, uh, Aging and and uh, it, it's it's a very strange movie because it, the title sets you up thinking that it's going to be one thing and it's totally not that at all. Uh, I got to talk to Sam Elliott a little bit right before the movie started, and he basically told me like, yeah, the trailer is not. Indicative of of what this movie actually is, because the trailer sort of makes it look like this action packed thing with Sam Elliott like running through the woods and hunting Bigfoot, and that happens in the movie, but it's a very very small section of the film. So uh, anyway, the movie is um, I don't know uh, tonally sort of all over the place, but uh, who Elliot would have expected a, that from the title of the movie? I know, I know. Uh, Elliot gives a, a pretty good performance, and he was a really nice guy, um, really great to talk to, and he you know he's nominated for an Oscar right now for um, his supporting role in *The Star Is Born*, so it was. Cool to get to talk to him and and to be there and and um you know I'm a big fan of his from going all the way back to you know movies like Tombstone and and um obviously Big Bowski and a bunch of great stuff that he's been in so uh, yeah that was my
3: Monday last week very then I cool. have a question about this yeah uh, about two years ago I spoke to a South by Southwest uh, programmer who said they turned this down because they could not justify playing movie with that title with the tone that it has they thought people would be would, would turn on it in a hard harsh way. Was there a reaction to a movie like this at the premiere? Like, what was it? What was the vibe of people like reacting to? It's a very straightforward drama that has that title and premise. I wish I could have seen it in a film festival environment
0: to get a genuine reaction, but because it's a premiere and like Sam Elliott and his wife uh, were there, and like you know, uh, I think his whole family actually, his daughter was there as well. Um, A lot of the people who are making the movie were there, and like the executives and stuff. So. When it was over, people in the theater were just standing up and, you know, congratulating each other and being like, "Oh, that was so great!" And like my wife and I were looking at each other, like we felt really bad because we didn't like the movie that much. Um, even though, it, you know, everybody involved with it seems really nice. It's a, it's the debut film of a first time filmmaker. And, and it, you know, it seems like it has its heart in the right place. It's just sort of a tonal mess. And I think the reaction would have been a lot harsher if the audience was full of, quote unquote, real people, you know, like yeah. a genuine audience. Um, I. I I'm almost certain the people at South by Southwest made the right choice because people who would go into this movie really amped based on that title and the fact that Sam Elliott is playing a like a badass would definitely come out of that movie um, with a case of whiplash for sure.
1: It's always the worst experiences when you go to a premiere, you know, like that, like a cast and crew screening or premiere and you're like the one group in there that didn't seem to like the movie. Like I know, I, re- I know I feel bad. <laughs> I remember a few years ago at Sundance, one of the you know Kevin Smith was there with yoga hosers, and at the time, we didn't know what kind of disaster that was gonna be, but it was one of the big films of that year, and I had to like it was almost impossible to get a ticket and I pulled some strings and I got a ticket from one of the uh casting crew that was there. So I was sitting. Like I, I actually like was waiting in the green room with the casting and crew and stuff before the movie and like I was sitting in their section uh during the movie and then after the movie, like the composer and all these people like what did you think? What do you think? I was like uh It was not very good. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah tough. It feels bad. Uh you have to like pull like i always my trick is always when someone asks me what i think and they're involved i'm like what what's the one positive thing i can say about this movie
0: yeah and like sam elliott's performance is pretty good i would recommend though that if you're looking for a good late career sam elliott performance in addition to his work in a star is born check out this movie called the hero that came out a couple years ago because that one there there wasn't too much chatter about that but he i think he's a little bit better in that film and that's like maybe a little bit better movie all around
1: Let's move on to what we've been reading uh, this week. I have been reading Juan Tamara's uh, "The The Magic Rainbow." Uh, for those of you who don't know, and you probably, if you live in America, you probably don't. Uh, Juan Tamaraz is probably the greatest and most respected magician alive. He's a Spanish magician. Uh, if you go to Spain or South America, like he is, you know the biggest thing there. Like he's like. Uh, actually like a part of that pop culture in a way that no magician is over here. And uh, over his career, uh, I think he's probably rounding out his career now. uh, He's written six books that have been translated into English, uh, which are honestly, I think five out of the six books are considered the greatest magic books of all time. So he, uh, has been working on this book called The Magic Rainbow for the last, I think, like 10 years or something. The book is 600 pages long. And, uh, it's finally been published and translated into English. And I've been reading that and, or, you know, trying to get through these 600 pages. It's very dense with magic theory. It's, uh, it's, a magnum opus of magic performance theory and uh, presents essays and explanations and revelations and insight and analysis and some of it is very uh, grandstanding uh, stuff and some of it's very useful. But uh, I I'm excited to get through this thing because I have sitting on my shelf a book from Blake Harris, one of our contributors, that his new book, The History of the Future. Jacob, I hear hear you actually have this book as well. Have have you started reading it?
3: Uh, Yeah. Disclosure real quick. Once again, as I I did when we talked about his previous book, Console Wars, Blake has written for Slash Film. Uh, I don't know him in real life, but I've edited his work. We've we've spoken um, via Twitter and email, which is why he sent me an early copy of his new book. So – With that said, if I didn't like this book, I wouldn't be bringing it up, so I flat out just wouldn't mention it. But so far, I really like the history of the future. This book is very similar to Console Wars in tone, except that instead of following the war between Nintendo and Sega in the 90s, it is about the the spectacular rise and even more spectacular fall of Palmer Luckey, the creator of the Oculus Rift, the VR headset that was going to change the world about five years ago. And if you follow video game news or tech news at all, you you probably know what went down with Palmer Luckey. He built a VR headset in a trailer when he was 19 years old, college dropout. Uh, A couple years later, his company was bought by Facebook for a billion dollars, and he made some decisions that are so spectacularly stupid that it just undid him. It destroyed him. It destroyed his career. It put put VR on life support. I mean, VR is still around, and the Oculus Rift is still actually the best headset, but it is—it's a Greek tragedy. The amount of like crazy stupidity yeah. of rise and fall that the history of the future tracks, and although from my understand,
1: re- this book is going to show us a little bit more of his side of things and how. Yeah
3: it, it, yeah, it is very much like console wars. It is written like a novel or a screenplay. It has that sort of immediacy to it because. Ah, uh, what, what Blake Harris did was he did all the usual interviews and tons of research you do for a book like this. But then he attempts to recreate scenes and recreate conversations, sort of condense things in a way a film would. So instead of like saying, this is what happened on this day, he will write that scene as a conversation between two people and try to uh, get across all the information as a, um, a as a dramatic scene. And though some people did not like those console awards. I think it reads really well and it reads like you're like like it reads the the, the the pacing of a TV show or a movie—it really like reads like the Social Network part too, which makes sense is Mark Zuckerberg is a huge character in this book, and Palmer Lucky, uh, knowing what he ends up doing, haven't got that part of the book yet. Like I walked in this book thinking, man, he's such an idiot, he's such a friggin' moron. I can't wait to like root for this guy's downfall, but he's just a really, really dumb kid. He's a really, really smart, really, really dumb kid who does something, who does some really stupid, idiotic things, and. and it puts a face on on a guy who became like this figure of like scorn and, la- and a laughing stock. And I don't think I ever like for- hope doesn't forgive him. I'm, I'm at that point yet, but it definitely helps you understand what kind of person he is. And I'm ve- I'm very excited to keep reading it. I'm, I'm trying to pace myself. Like I, I blitzed through console wars, his previous book. And that book is just an absolute blast. And this book, uh, unlike console wars, which is ultimately about people who are really good at their jobs, doing the right things. And who I ended up like really falling in love with. Some really nasty, bad people enter the narrative of the history of the future, and they become really heavily involved in the story in ways that I'm dreading because I, I know what kind of people they are. I'm talking about <laughs> like the alt right movement plays a part. You know, Mark Zuckerberg and all the Facebook shenanigans, Palmer Luckey's future decisions. I am I am dreading watching Palmer Luckey's downfall from from this personal perspective. It's like hurting my soul knowing that <laughs> where I am in the book right now, where he's rising so high, is going to crash and burn in, in a way that is going to like leave scars on an entire industry it is a fascinating read
1: yeah and uh from what i understand blake harris got like for the first time ever an unprecedented um that facebook gave him unprecedented access to basically go in and Be in Facebook and interview anybody and talk to anybody who who wants and, you know, get access to emails and and whatnot. Uh, So I'm excited to read this because it seems like it's going to be a very insightful look into uh, that company and this, you know, this small space and time. H.T., what have you been reading?
2: Um, I have been reading Dracula by Bram Stoker, diving back into the classics again. Uh, This is a book that has been sitting, collecting dust on my bookshelf for a while, and um, I was kind of actually wanting to dive into Dune next uh, in preparation for the feature film, but uh, I wasn't able to get a copy. So I was like, you know, might as well just read Dracula. It's been waiting for me. And um, it's it's so good. Uh, I've always been... um, particular to the graphic the gothic um, horror genre rather kind of the romance section of that Jane Eyre Rebecca those were a lot of my favorite books growing up so it's really interesting reading uh, something from this genre that's from distinctly horror um, perspective and angle and it's so I'm only about a third of the way in I've gotten to the part where uh, Jonathan Harker has Uh, spoilers for anyone who has does not know anything about Dracula escaped uh, Transylvania with his life and um it's surprisingly action-packed uh which I did not expect I from my experience with with a gothic horror and the gothic genre uh usually it's quite a slow build but here it kind of dives right into it and a lot of the action doesn't really take place in Transylvania surprisingly so um it it's a for those who don't know about this story, it tells the story about uh, Count Dracula, who is the sort of root of all of a lot of vampire mythology and literature. And uh, it's how he um, decides to move from Transylvania to England to find new blood and spread the curse of the undead. Um, and uh, it, a, a small group of men and women. To try to take up arms against him, led by Professor Abraham Van, Van Helsing. And uh, so, this is um, mostly told through a series of letters and correspondences, which was really interesting, but also kind of a, a staple of the Gothic genre as well. And um, it's very good so far, and uh, I can't wait to finish reading it. I know that Jacob was, uh, in particular, quite excited that I was I took this up. Um, so, Jacob, what are you? What are you? Um, what do you want to say about Dracula?
3: Oh, Dracula is so good. I mean, I love the the like the old Universal monster movies. I love many of the adaptations, but nobody has managed to capture what makes this book so good. And you hit the nail on the head. HD is an action packed book. There's so much like excitement and adventure. It's a it's like a. There's, there's a lot of great horror and it's very chilling and great creepy stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's swashbuckling at times. And it's and for for a book that's written in like in the form of diary entries and letters, it's especially interesting because it reads, like, Hey, let me tell you about this adventure I went on and it's really, really fun and you haven't even gotten to my favorite part of the book yet. We'll we'll talk later. But there's a stretch the, the final third of the book is the part that all the movies always cut out and it's for my money the best part of anything Dracula ever. And it is a blast, and I'm I'm still waiting for somebody to look at the last third of Dracula and take that one chunk and make it an entire movie, because I think you could. I think it would be the best Dracula movie ever, but we'll talk more later on. Okay. Hmm,
1: very interesting. Uh, Chris, what have you been reading?
5: Uh, I recently read this very long CNN article by Thomas Lake called uh, Lost in the Woods with James Brown's Ghost, and it's this in-depth investigation on whether or not james brown was murdered and you know that sounds crazy but if you read this piece it seems very plausible and you know the piece doesn't draw a conclusion one way or another but it does make a very strong case for the fact that this actually happened uh
1: it does i mean i guess it doesn't have any conclusive results right
5: right yeah there's no like you know Here's the proof. It's you know, you have to draw your own conclusions, but it, did it reads convince like... you. What's that? Did it convince you that he was murdered? I really don't know. It sort of did, but at the same time, you know, there's always a chance it's just you know, a lot of it's like hearsay and coincidence, but there it, there's a very strong chance that it actually might have happened. I feel like this is the kind
1: of thing that would eventually be turned into like a Netflix documentary.
5: Yeah, it, as I was reading it, I had that same thought where like any day now this is going to become some sort of, you know, five-part Netflix series. Well, we will link that CNN article in the show
1: notes if you want to check that out. Let's move on to what we've been watching. I'll start things off by saying I rented Blind Spotting on uh, iTunes and uh you guys were right. This is one of the best films of last year. I'm if I had seen it last year, I would have included it in my top 10 um this is a movie about a man who is in his final days of probation uh and alongside his friend who is basically the the embodiment of trouble uh are living in Oakland, California which is being gender fried uh by hipsters who drink $10 green drinks and eat veggie burgers. Um, the, the the movie is oftentimes hilarious. It's very powerful, moving. Uh, it The climactic scene, uh, it has these freestyle rap sequences that work better for me than most, like, you know, song scenes and musicals. Um, I want to see more films like this. Uh, there's also a... Sequence where they're telling a story, uh, which reminds me of kind of like Michael Pena's uh, scene in Ant-Man, and I think it tops that actually. Uh, so uh, if you uh, have not seen Blindspotting, uh, you know, correct that mistake. Go see it. I, I highly recommend it. Um, I also attended the Junket screening for How to Train Your Dragon: The Hidden World. I love the original film. The second film I remember liking, but I can almost only remember like two or three things about it uh so it has not uh you know its legacy in my mind has not uh remained heavy uh but i um saw the sequel and uh or this uh this is the conclusion to the how that how to train your dragon trilogy and it's an epic thrilling beautiful and surprisingly emotional conclusion at that um it is uh Guys, we are in an age of some awesome animated films with Spider Verse and um, Lego Movie Two, and this, and you know, I'm I'm guessing I'm probably forgetting some stuff, but uh, uh, but this is uh, this is so good. It's uh, I know, like the first film, I feel like was the first time I was in a movie theater and I felt like I was flying, like had that that beautifully. Beautiful flying sequence and this film I think follows that up with uh you might even top it in in flying sequences um all the characters have arcs, all of them have, get their moments uh it's also very rare that in an animated franchise that you get to grow up with these characters like I know in Toy Story the toy story franchise we get to see andy grow up in the background but he's not a main character the the toys are basically the same throughout the the, the franchise and that that's a lot a lot of uh, animated sequels are like that right but with how to train your dragon you really are growing up with these these characters these characters are changing and becoming more adults and it's, it's it's actually interesting that we don't really get that much in american animated cinema um it's uh this is how you do a trilogy I really hope they don't make more of these because the ending is so perfect. Um, I'm not sure if the bad guy's plan completely makes sense in this movie. But, uh, and I guess my only other complaint is the hidden world, which I think you see in some of the advertising. It's this bioluminescent hidden place uh, reminiscent of like Avatar or something like that. Um, It is such a small part of this film to be You know, you know, named in the title. But aside from those two nitpicks, I really love this film. If you if you like the first film in this franchise, go see this uh, when it hits theaters at the end of next week. Yeah. And uh, on Netflix, I watched a documentary called Abducted in Plain Sight. This is a 2017 documentary. So this isn't a documentary made by Netflix. This is a documentary bought by Netflix that I know played the festival circus, uh, circuit. And, um, it's a stranger than fiction, true story of this family, a uh, naive church going Idaho family who fell under the spell of a sociopathic neighbor with designs on their 12 year old daughter. Um, it's a very talking head style documentary with these dramatic reenactments uh, which are presented almost like they're vintage family film footage. Um, the story is one of the stories that like every 20 minutes gets more and more nuts and you're like, there's no way this can get even more crazy, but it gets more crazy. And I I, don't know, I, I wrote down here some notes that I was going to reveal like even a little bit of the what happens in this but i feel like i feel like if you want to see this you don't want to know but uh i will say it involves alien abductions so uh you should check out this documentary it's it's infuriating it's insane uh chris you all are wait who also saw this film it was Chris. yeah, chris, yeah. it was me yeah
5: yeah um Uh, Like you said, the less you know about this, the better. But this is uh, infuriating. This is a very upsetting documentary, and it will make you hate just about everyone except uh, the victim, the one victim. Everyone else, you're going to be gnashing your teeth at. So don't don't expect this to be like you know a a fun, quote unquote, fun true crime thing. Because you know some true crime things, even when they deal with murder they're entertaining i guess is the word you can use for it but this is not that this is very disturbing and it's going to make you angry yeah but also by watching this the
1: victim gets their due right like i feel like there's some catharsis in that way so um but uh yeah okay um so you can find that on netflix and i also watched uh the first handful of episodes of this show called wayne has anybody heard of this show it's a youtube show right yes i've seen
2: it, that ads for it
1: yeah I, I had not heard about this show and somehow I, I came across it uh it is uh written and produced by rhett reese and paul wernick the writers of *Zombieland* and dead the deadpool movies the show uh is initially set in brockton massachusetts which isn't too far from where i lived and was born uh it stars mark mckenna who uh, was in Sing Street and Overlord. He uh, plays the title character, Wayne, and he's kind of pitched as a 16-year-old Dirty Harry with the Heart of Gold who sets off on this road trip adventure with uh, a new uh, girl who he befriends named Del, uh, played by Sierra Bravo. Um, and, uh, they are on this trip to try to, uh, get back the 79 trans am that was stolen from his father right before his father died of cancer. Um, so it's kind of like this adventure story, but it's, uh, has kind of, uh, coming of age and heart of like John Hughes movies. It's, uh... You can definitely feel the budgetary limitations of in the show like I think you can with any Netflix show or any uh, YouTube show, including Cobra Kai. Uh, the characters are all kind of white trash characters that, you know, seem like they've been lifted out of a Jerry Springer episode. So if that bothers you, maybe don't watch this. Uh, every episode has these extremely bloody fights as uh, Wayne is, you know, doing justice to something, you know, uh, fighting some kind of injustice that's happening. And, uh, but it's often like very bloody. Uh, the show is full of vulgar language. Uh, the re- but I think for me, what I like about the show is at the center is this relationship, uh, between him and this this girl, Del. And it's very sweet. It's like surprisingly sweet for the rest of the movie, uh, or for the rest of the show. I, I would describe this show as like John Wick meets, uh, I'm not sure if anybody's seen that film uh by the way of like my name is Earl if, if, if the combination of those things sounds like something you'd want to watch I would check this out this is on YouTube premium so I think you might actually have to subscribe to YouTube premium to see it. Uh, a few of the episodes are directed by Steve Pink who directed uh comedies like Accepted and Hot Tub Time Machine and the showrunner Sean Simmons uh did uh, School of Rock and Awkward uh the TV series um but I would recommend it I'd recommend checking it out I've watched I think the first 5 episodes and I'm going to I'm going to finish it um but I I feel like YouTube is not promoting this show it's not um it's not amazing in 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 the you know we are in peak TV and I feel like It's hard to recommend anything that isn't amazing, but it's it's very enjoyable, and uh, if you have YouTube Premium, I would recommend it. Jacob, what have you been watching?
3: I have not been watching much. My wife's been out of town for a week to visit her uh, sister, who recently gave birth to a child, so I'm an uncle, I guess for the fourth time over now. So rather than watch movies, which I can do anytime, um, I decided to devote all my wifeless time to playing video games, which I'll discuss momentarily. But I I did rewatch GoldenEye, which is streamed on Amazon Prime, the first Pierce Brosnan James Bond film from 1995. The movie holds up. It's odd. Actually, let me take it back. It holds up and it doesn't hold up in really interesting ways, which is one of the reasons why I love the James Bond movies so much. It's because how they hold up and they don't hold up. And in many ways, GoldenEye is clinging desperately to old school Bond movies while desperately reaching forward to the future in... In ways that are fascinating to watch them clash. And this is the only Pierce Brosnan Bond movie that's actually genuinely good. The rest, you know, are either bad or I like with, you know, with certain caveats. Um, But but it's very very interesting to note that this is Martin Campbell who did Casino Royale, which has actually aged, in my opinion, into being the absolute best James Bond movie. He directed this, you know, very serviceable, very good, you know, but wobbly movie in 1995, and then 11 years later, rebooted the series with a straight-up bonafide masterpiece. So it's very interesting to watch GoldenEye these days for many reasons. Uh, and also, uh, Sean Bean is incredible uh, as one of my favorite James Bond villains. Uh, also, I watched this a few months ago, and I never mentioned it here. I don't know why, but with the news that Season 4 has been all but, all but announced, I want to talk about... Did anybody else know they brought back BattleBots a few years ago? Uh, genuine did anybody else know this i think what? you mentioned that in the slack channel or something I, right. think,
4: I think i actually wrote about it maybe when it happened and this might and that might have been i don't i don't know if it was before jacob came to slash film or something but i could, i remember doing something about battle bots maybe i'm wrong though
1: jacob it's <laughs> funny because you love all sorts of like competition shows that are not traditional sports
3: Yes, uh, BattleBots made me the best of them, Peter. I mean, when I was a kid, and, and BattleBots was on Comedy Central, you, you may remember this from, like, the early 2000s. It was a show where people literally built robots with buzzsaws and hammers and, and hydraulic flippers, and they went to a, a ring, and they fought the robots for three minutes, and, you know, to the victory of the spoils. And I loved it when I was a kid. Uh, I revisited I it on YouTube every so often, and the old fights, you know, seem a little tame these days, and it seems like it has a goofy tone. New BattleBots, which is playing on the Science Channel for the past three seasons, and season four begins filming very soon, hasn't been officially announced, but they've announced dates for when the competition will be held and tickets are available, so people are assuming it's, it's going to happen. New BattleBots is fantastic. The robots are more advanced. like They're, they're, they're absolutely killer. They're so much of crazy technology involved. Um, and it's very much these stories of... These giant nerds from all different kinds. You have like literally got guys who are like socially awkward, um, pudgy, uh, pasty guys from the mom's basements. You have like Brooklyn hipsters. You have like really cool teams of people. You have father father like daughter teams. You have family teams. You have like people who are who are, like are NASA engineers, like coworkers. All these various like science nerds have built killer robots and they come to fight. And season three is available to buy on Amazon. I think it's like 25 bucks for the entire season, like 22 episodes. And if you are remotely interested in watching gladiatorial robots, that is more than worth it. That's, that's a, that's, you know, each episode is an hour long. Each episode has so much going on. The robot combat itself is really fun, but even more fun is the personalities, like watching these people who just want to build robots and then trash other robots with the robots. And it's, and it's so rare when people have bad feelings toward each other. Like everybody, like is so happy to be to be battling robots. Even when they lose, they're smiling. They're they're like high fiving. They're hand shaking. It's such a good spirited, warm hearted thing. And also to see robots destroy each other. Like the robots now are so powerful. Like and the technology being used to build them is so insane. And and if you go on YouTube, you have a lot of um, cut footage from between the fights, where like they had to realize, oh, I won this fight. My robot's trash. I, I have another fight tomorrow. I have 18 hours to rebuild my robot using all these spare parts. and go watch up behind the scenes footage that didn't make the episode, which makes it even better. I wish it was actually in the show. Yeah, but BattleBots Season 3, all available for purchase on Amazon. Season 4 film soon. And I can't believe how much I love BattleBots. Even my wife, who rolled her eyes so hard, like was hooked after Episode 1. So, <laughs> BattleBots, please go watch BattleBots. It's really good. Jacob, I feel like in a a few years from
1: now, we're going to be looking back, and we're going to be like, "How did the the fall of mankind happen?" And it's it's, it's going to be two things. It's going to be reality television, and it's going to be battle bots. <laughs> reality television, obviously, and you know our leaders, and uh, you know battle bots are going to be the ones that take over. These robots are going to become sentient, and all because you enjoyed watching them compete against each other on TV.
3: Oh, it'll be worth it. Battle bots is that good?
1: <laughs> okay, uh, Chris. What have you been watching?
5: Uh, last night I saw uh, Happy Death Day to You, which is the sequel to Happy Death Day, and my review is up on slashfilm.com as we speak. Uh, and I loved it. I was a, I was you know I liked the first film, but I <laughs> I was not expecting to love this film as much as I did. Um, it it completely ignores the first film's tone, which was trying to be sort of a series, not serious, but like an actual horror movie with some comedy and this is just a full-blown comedy which might throw some people off but i really liked it um jessica roth is uh once again phenomenal i don't understand how she's not like a bigger star yet because i honestly think she's a phenomenal actor she she does so much in these two movies that it's you know she's constantly having to do like physical comedy and you know uh regular comedy and drama and just horror she's she's basically running the gamut here and i remain somewhat confused as to how she's not a bigger star yet but the movie itself is is fantastic i i loved it more than the original uh very cool what (laughs) else
1: have you been watching
5: uh, so, uh, you know, I, I mentioned this before, but I got a very big TV for Christmas. And so I've been trying to rewatch things that demand a bigger screen. And I realized my wife and I realized we hadn't seen, uh, Titanic, the James Cameron movie Titanic in a very long time. And I didn't even actually own it. So I was like, you know what, let's, let's watch this. So I bought it on Blu-ray and we sat down over the weekend and we watched it. It And uh, that movie still holds up. Um, You know, when that came out, it was a huge deal. I saw it several times in theaters. And, uh, you know, I I know over time it's gotten this weird reputation because of just, I don't know, James Cameron's general jerky attitude. But, you know, it's it's a great movie. Um, It does have some things that don't really work. Um, I think, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, very Italian friend. I forget. His, I think his name is like Fabrizio. He's just awful. Where he's just like, ah, I go to America. He's just talking like that. <laughs> he's like, oh, we. I love meatballs. It's really like it's just hammering at home. Like, all right. And then like at the beginning of the movie where you know Kate Winslet and her mom and Billy Zane show up. Billy Zane gets out of the car and he's like. Ah, there's that unsinkable ship. God himself can't sink it. It's like, all right, like I get it, James Cameron. You should tone it down just a little bit. But other than that, I, I really loved it. Kate Winslet is so good in this movie. I think this is like the first time I became aware of her as an actress. And um, one thing I, I, I never really picked up on when I, you know, when it came out, but I, I did this time and I really appreciated it is that her character is the one. Who really like initiates like all like you know the romance, which is not really typical for you know big Hollywood movies. Like it's usually like the guy chasing the girl, but she's like really doing all the heavy lifting. Even that scene where like they finally, you know, she and Leo finally have sex in the car. Like he's he's sitting up front acting like a chauffeur, like a jackass, and she like grabs him by the <laughs> like neck. <a> <laughs> Well, like, he's in the front. He's like, "Where to, Misses?" It's like, "All right, idiot!" Like, read the singles. And she, like, she grabs him by the neck and like pulls him <laughs> into the back of the car because she's like, "Dude, like, I want to get it on. Stop pretending you're a chauffeur in this car." <laughs> but yeah, but you know, so uh, you know, I I really like Titanic. It still holds up. That's I, my. I have a question yeah. for you. What do you think
1: Titanic's legacy is in pop culture? Because uh, I was with some friends over the weekend and we were going over the top. Uh, films of all time by worldwide box office. And we went, I, I think we got down 30 movies in that, in that list. Every single one, I think are films that people like have posters on their walls and walk out, you know, it's not, would not be surprising to see someone with a t shirt, you know, walking down the street of those movies or like characters from those movies, except for two movies. One of them is Avatar. The number
5: one of all time, and number two is uh, Titanic. Like, I, I mean, I think Titanic definitely has a bigger place in culture than Avatar. Like, you know, I, I feel like people will still quote that goddamn King of the World thing, but no, I can't remember a yeah. single quote from Avatar. I don't know what anyone says in that movie. Hey, Chris, this I, is, Chris, I, I, see,
1: I see you, Chris. I see you.
5: I also
2: think that there are a lot of people who do own posters of Titanic. Um, so. It might not be on T-shirts, but definitely yeah. there. It's a very widespread poster.
3: I, don't, I yeah, just well, find it strange. It, it that... came out when it was re-released. Like a lot of people saw it in re-release, right? like people Titanic, and re-released. Right? People love Titanic. I don't think people would flock to a re-release of Avatar. Yeah. Am I right? I don't know. I, uh, hope, I hope not. We'll, <laughs> we'll
1: see with the uh, with the Avatar sequels. And I'm not saying that Titanic's a bad movie. I actually like Titanic quite a bit. I just find it strange that James Cameron's movies like tend to like people see them and like love them, but. You know the the only thing we yeah th- you're right the only thing that we kind of quote is the uh, king of the world and like if you're on a sh- boat or ship you do that thing in the front of the well, boat.
2: Those paint me like your French girls too. Oh, that's I
1: guess that one. too. Yeah. Yeah, that's
5: that's a big one. Yeah. I
1: don't know. I, I'm just wondering why do James Cameron movies do not like why do they kind of fade in in pop culture?
5: I don't know if they do. I feel like Avatar is the only one that does. Like if people people still talk about the terminator and they're still making sequels of that. Like I think avatar is really the only one, which is ironic because it's the biggest hit of all of them. But for some reason, that's the one that's faded.
1: I still think the Titanic faded. I remember when that came out, everybody was all about Titanic. But I I agree
2: with you, Peter. I think Titanic is still so prevalent today. Like it, Whenever it airs um, on reruns on TV, I know a lot of people who will just watch it over and over despite its two-and-a-half-hour length. And But I'm, I'm not the saying people-
1: watching. I'm saying, like, it's part of your everyday life. Like, like <laughs> like Star Wars is part of my everyday life. Like, even, like, you, you get to, like, the Despicable Me movies and the Minions movies that are in, like, the top 30. Like, I can't go to a theme park anywhere and not see someone in a Minions t-shirt or I can't walk down the street Yeah,
4: but Titanic isn't the kind of movie where you like you're you you have action figures or like you're wearing like there are a bunch of t-shirts about it or or anything like that like it's it's not the same kind of movie that has penetrated pop culture in that same way but I think it's still very much prominent yeah you know it's just not in the same way that Star Wars is simply because of there's not the same merchandise push and things like that yeah
0: yeah it's a historical drama there's not really the same opportunities for uh, all that stuff but
4: i feel like if they
3: made a sequel with rose in the 20s like (laughs) trying to raise a family in new york that would be a franchise and we can you know talk about some more but that's that's a pretty definitive ending everybody's dead
2: yeah it's (laughs) not a it's not a Yeah, it's not a franchise. It's a melodrama. And melodramas still have quite a standing. Like you think of From Here to Eternity, for example, and like, you know, the beach kiss and everything. And that's not something that's on T-shirts, but something that everyone's aware of, despite not having seen that movie. And I think Titanic is in the same boat. huh?
1: (laughs) But I do feel like when it came out, people were buying like replicas of like the the China that they ate on in the Titanic, and like it was kind of a big. They had like these big uh, museum recreations of the Titanic. Like you could walk through the Titanic, like parts of the Titanic. You, and you stuff. get
4: that battle-damaged Titanic playset with the Rose and Jack action figures.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we've said enough about this, uh, Chris. What else have you been watching?
5: Uh, so, uh, Shudder has this really great documentary right now called Horror Noir, and it's all about, uh, the history of black horror. It's, you know, it's about, you know, African-Americans and horror and the, the history stretching all the way back to the start of film. And, uh, it's, it's really good. It's, you know, I, I, I know a lot about horror. I, I, am not going to go off so far as to say like, I'm an expert, but I know a lot about horror and this movie like taught me things or put things in context that I really didn't know before. And I love when a documentary does that. I love when a film documentary does that instead of just, you know, telling me stuff I already know, like, you know, just as an example, you know, everyone knows, you know, night of the living dead. It was a big deal that George Romero cast, you know, a a black guy as the lead like that. And I had already, I had always known that, you know, but I always thought of it in terms of like, trivia like that's an interesting thing that happened and this movie it really puts it in context because it goes through every decade up to that film and when you get there you realize what a huge deal it was for him to do that even though you know Romero has always always used to say like he wasn't thinking about that when he cast the role but it, it really puts it in context and it, it reveals how just like important it was and um, You know, the, the movie, it goes all the way up to, you know, like Get Out, which is like, you know, the biggest recent um, black horror movie. And, you know, if you're a fan of horror in general, uh, I would really recommend watching this because it's really good and it's really informative. Where, where can people find this? This is now streaming on Shudder, the the horror streaming service, which everyone should have because it's like five bucks a month and it's great.
3: And our own Marissa Mirabal wrote a uh, longer review for the site, which we'll link in the show notes. Uh, it's also very good. Yeah.
4: I got to say, I'm not a fan of that title, Horror Noir, because it reminds me of The Rural
5: Juror from 30 Rock. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't didn't think of that, but that's funny. Um, uh, And finally, I watched The New Robin Hood with uh, that guy. What's his name? Taron Edgerton and Jamie (laughs) Foxx. And, uh, you know, I will say this movie isn't as awful as I thought it would be, but it's really stupid and really strange like it blends all these eras which i just don't understand why they did it because it's it's clearly set in the past but it's like the flintstones where it's in the past but everyone has really modern stuff under different names and it's like why is this movie like this and all the clothes are really modern like maid marion shows up and she's clearly wearing like a leather jacket from H and M, and it's like why, <laughs> is, why is she doing that when this is like medieval England? It's it's so strange. And you know, some of the action is surprisingly good, like you know the the bow and arrow stuff, which is actually done practically, like it's not all CGI. It's really Tary Taryn Edgerton like firing bows and arrows, like it looks surprisingly cool. But you know, as a film, uh, it's 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 very stupid. And I almost think you should watch it just to see how strange that era blending is because it's never explained they just do it and it just makes for a very strange viewing experience like there are guys who have like crossbows that fire bows like they're like machine gun bullets and nothing like that has ever existed (laughs) and i I just don't understand what's going on in this film
1: Hmm. that description of it makes me want to see it more than any of the marketing i saw for the movie
5: (laughs) i'm telling if this ever shows up on netflix it's like the perfect Like, put-it-on-in-the-background Netflix movie. Cool. Uh, Brad, what have you been watching?
4: Uh, Last week, I went to a press screening for Isn't It Romantic? Uh, The new romantic comedy directed by Todd Strauss-Scholzen, who directed The Final Girls a little while back. And uh, funnily enough, it's kind of a similar premise as The Final Girls. Uh, If you haven't seen that movie, which you should go out of your way to do that. Um, it's a movie about a girl who gets stuck in the world of a horror movie and has to figure out how to get out of it. Um, it's, it's a movie that her mother, uh, was in when she was younger. And it's, uh, it's just a very cool approach to the horror genre and slasher tropes. It's, it's funny. It's stylish. It's very cool. And, uh, Todd does the same thing with this movie where he takes Rebel Wilson and she gets stuck in the world of a dreamy romantic comedy where it plays out all the various tropes of the romantic comedy genre, and it is uh, it's it's actually really good. It's uh, very lighthearted and and funny. Uh, as somebody who doesn't normally like Rebel Wilson uh, in anything more than small doses as a supporting role, she's actually really good in this movie. She's very charming. She's funny. She's not over the top. Uh, Liam Hemsworth, specifically in this movie, is. Uh, hilarious This is the first time he's ever broken out And really done comedy like this Chris Hemsworth has mostly been the Hemsworth brother Doing uh, the funny stuff He is such a goober And a cheese ball in this movie And he was cracking me up uh, Throughout the whole thing it's, uh, it's a breezy movie It has it does um, some interesting things you know, With the romantic comedy genre That subverts expectations a little bit It's nothing earth shattering But it's still it's uh, a cool approach To th- this kind of movie
1: and uh H T you also saw this film?
2: Yeah, I was intrigued by um Rad's warm words for this movie, so I went to see it yesterday. Uh, I'm not review- you're reviewing it, but I wanted to check it out. And I enjoyed this uh, a lot, too. Um, this is, like Brad said, kind of lightweight. It's a little bit shallow sometimes in the way that it tackles these rom-com tropes. But I'm all about those deconstructions of, of the rom-com in, um, any, in any flavor. Uh, this is something that actually Crazy Ex-Girlfriend did not just two weeks ago. And while the show did it slightly better, uh, this is a really well done <laughs> (laughs) just kind of entertaining fluff of a film and um I think that Rebel Wilson was was really charming in it and uh Liam Hemsworth was it was really refreshing to see him play that you know self deprecating like humor type of of role just like not afraid to make fun of himself and I feel like he was kind of taking cues from his brother in a lot of senses so it was it was fun to see that and um I uh I yeah I liked it quite a bit and um it does think that it is a little smarter than it is, but I found that it didn't. It wasn't malicious in the way that it approached rom-com tropes. Despite at the beginning, kind of listing off all of the tropes in a very cinema sense type of ways, so and like, oh, this is what's wrong with it. This is why this genre is wrong. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I don't really care about that. Like, the people who are going to see this movie are the people who love rom-coms and want to see it sent up in some way that um, still feels, you know, like it loves the genre. And I did think at the end that it did kind of have a a good a, a good approach to that and like did love the genre in ge- in general. So, it's a good film and um a fun film to see for Valentine's Day, which is coming up this week.
1: So, this is something you'd recommend to see in theaters? Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's really fun. And you'll I don't know about UHD. I can't get Liam Hemsworth saying, you're quite beguiling, aren't you? Out out of my head. (laughs) He says it so many times.
2: (laughs) It was great. Yeah, like Rebel Wilson's uh, one-liners, too, whenever she kind of does a little commentary about the the tropes that are playing out are always great because they're very understated, uh, which um, was really refreshing, too, because I felt like this could have been very... In your face and in some cases it was but the way that she kind of takes it down is really fun Like when he says you're quite beguiling many times. She's like, is that the, is that the first word? Like is, did you just learn the meaning of that word because he <laughs> keeps saying it?
4: Uh, well, th- uh, yeah, we actually have a we have an interview coming up with uh, Todd Strauss uh coming up on the site on Wednesday I believe um, where he talks about the extremely extensive preparation he did for the movie um, and a bunch of really interesting deep dives into just romantic comedy as a genre and and the movie. So make sure you keep an eye out for that.
1: Very cool. Last week on this podcast, I talked about seeing the Lego movie too. I was surprised at how much I loved it. Brad, you're the only other person that has seen this movie. What did you think?
4: I I really liked it too. I'm I'm honestly kind of surprised and a little flabbergasted that people are being kind of down on it. I feel like it delivers... More of the same in the best way possible. It's it's not quite as good as the original Lego movie, but I think it's only because that shine of how original the the first Lego movie was has worn off a little bit. You know, we know what kind of humor we're getting. You know, the the meta approach to um, the world and the, the comedy itself and then the, the live action element is, isn't a surprise. They even reveal... Uh, really like how how it's unfolding at, throughout the movie, rather than being a surprise at the end, since we we know what's going on. And I just feel like it does this really interesting thing of of sh- using the Lego world to fantastically represent the struggle that a brother and sister have as they're growing up. As the brother is maybe getting a little bit older, turning into a bit more of kind of a teenage jerk, uh, and the you know the, the the younger sibling just wants to. You know, play with their their older sibling and just have fun, and you know, you know, pl- play in the le- the Lego world that they've created. Um, and it's just, I thought it was really clever, and I thought I, I still think it's very funny. The animation again is really cool. I'm always kind of in awe of how they bring the world to life in Lego form because it looks so detailed and it it never looks uh like an artificial lego world that it, it always looks like it was actually built with legos and in, in motion um so yeah i really l- like the sequel a lot i wish more people were going to see it it's kind of a bummer that it's not doing as well at the box office as uh analysts thought it would because i i really think that it's great
1: i feel like the marketing just didn't sell it as well as i mean i'm not sure what you could have done to sell it better but i feel like i just felt like the marketing made it look like it was just a cash grab sequel, and this really has some clever, interesting things about it. But uh, yeah. w- w- what else did you watch, Brad? Uh,
4: I watched Four Weddings and a Funeral for the first time recently. Uh, I had never seen it before, so this was—it uh, felt like a good thing to watch. My my girlfriend hadn't seen it in a long time, uh, and you know Valentine's Day is coming up, so in, in that romantic comedy mood. Uh, and it's uh, it's fantastic. It's you know it's one of those classic British romantic comedies. Um, it's uh, comes from Simon Curtis, uh, who's behind Love Actually, and you can tell like his uh, his style is very much there. Uh, is it Simon Curtis or Richard Curtis? Am I saying the name wrong? Richard Curtis. Richard Curtis, sorry. So yeah, Richard Curtis, and it's um it's very much in that same vein of Love Actually. This I think this is actually better. But I will say my complaint with this one um and spoilers i guess if you haven't seen four weddings and a funeral even though it's you know like 25 years old at this point um i don't like how the relationship between Hugh Grant and Andy McDowell plays out throughout this movie because it's it's painted as like oh like they're the, the they're meant for each other but like Andy McDowell's character is adulterous and sneaky and like just it's she she cheats on her her husband and Sure, you can say, like, some relationships are spawned from infidelity, but, like, she, she leads Hugh Grant on, and you just don't do that to Hugh Grant. Um, so, I, I don't know, this just, yeah, it, it felt really, I felt odd about it. As charming as it is and as as, as great as the ensemble cast is, the, the romance at the core of it really just didn't sit too well with me.
1: I just love that. You just don't do that to Hugh Grant. <laughs>
4: Has anybody else like seen *Forwarding the Funeral*? Does anybody else like have similar perspective or like disagree?
2: I have, unsurprisingly, <laughs> uh, although it's been a while since I've seen it, and I remember it being quite like very dry British humor, and I enjoyed that a lot because I felt like the romance actually wasn't at the forefront. It was more just kind of the shenanigans of this like group of friends and everything that kept happening, and um, I think I was distracted by how just. Charming and beautiful Andy McDowell is to remember her being quite so mean to Hugh Grant. but I'm not I wouldn't be surprised if you were correct.
4: Andy McDowell is undoubtedly alluring uh, in this movie, and it, it is that charm that makes makes me feel kind of okay about it, but still not fully on board. But I think you are right about the, it's it really is about the group of friends and the relationships I have. and Uh, just the bond between them. And it it did remind me of uh, Notting Hill because the the ensemble that surrounds Hugh Grant in that movie also did uh, elevate that romantic comedy, um, just like this one did. Mm -hmm.
1: And Brad, what else did you watch?
4: And then I also watched uh, Coldplay, A Head Full of Dreams, which is a uh, career-spanning documentary about Coldplay, the uh, famous British alternative band. Um, And this is one of the... um, coolest rock documentaries I've seen in a while. It's it's pretty basic because it charts their rise from their early days to to today, but what made this one really special and cool is that they have a friend um who is the uh director of this movie and he has been friends with the band since a year before they became Coldplay. Um and so his uh his perspective on this is it's a little bit skewed because obviously he's friends with them, but he doesn't shy away from showing uh, the real side of the band. And what's cool is since he's been with them uh, so long, he actually has all of this archive footage that has been shot since from before they were famous from their college years when they first formed the band and were just like playing music randomly, all this like behind the scenes stuff. He's, he's basically been documenting the band for their entire career, so the the entire documentary is full of this great intimate personal footage of just them being friends and working on albums and behind the scenes of their tours, and it, it really makes it almost feel like it's a like a coming of age narrative about Coldplay. Yeah. Um, and it's so that there's a little bit of concert footage in there, but it's not a ton of concert footage. It's it's some stuff from uh, their their most recent tour before they um, have kind of have been taking a break a little bit. Um, after they released the the album that the documentary is also titled, A Head Full of Dreams. Um, and it's just really cool. And uh, yeah, Matt Whitecross is the director who's been friends with them forever. And, it's yeah, if you get a chance to check it out, it's on Amazon Prime. Peter, you might like to know that there are a couple Back to the Future references uh, because apparently one uh, particular scene in Back to the Future was something that really inspired Chris Martin to want to be uh, in a band when he was a kid.
1: Oh, very cool. Sounds... uh. Like mind, Minding the Gap last year had kind of that same uh, situation of, you know, uh, being able to fo- uh, use intimate footage that had been shot throughout the years because, uh, the you know, the director was kind of friendly with the, the group. Uh, so that, that that I think would be I'm not usually a fan of music documentaries, but that seems like something that might be of interest to me. Um, but H.T., uh, what have you been watching?
2: Um, I also, in addition to watching Isn't It Romantic, I saw What Men Want, which was a bigger disappointment to me. Um, This was the gender-bent version of What Women Want, uh, this time starring Taraj P. Henson as a woman who uh, hits her head, which seems to be a more common thing with with, uh, romantic comedies and comedies in general these days, and uh, learns that she can hear the thoughts of all men. And she uses this to her advantage to... um, you know, get ahead in her career and uh, try to break into the elite boys club that takes, that is kind of dominating her um, sports agency firm. And um, this is a film that I. It was very crass, broad humor, which is something that I'm not very particular to already, but I feel like the premise itself was something that isn't really made to be a modern-day adaptation. Like It's from a 2000 film, and it feels very much of that time, and I felt like it struggled to adapt that sort of premise to a modern-day story without resorting to all of these stereotypes and broad... um, archetypes of the genre and i felt like this the film itself was just very flat and kind of missed the mark in terms of like the the uh female empowerment that it was trying to put forward and um yeah i was i wasn't a fan i i taraj b henson was doing her best and she was really giving it her all in this film but um it was was not good (laughs) um I also wrote a review for it, and you can find it on SlashFilm.com. Uh, the next film I saw was uh, this Netflix film called Dear X. And this is a Taiwanese film that's kind of a uh, LGBT uh, slash coming-of-age slash family dramedy. And it's about a teenager whose father dies of cancer. And uh, he um, his father leaves the insurance payout to his um former gay lover while leaving his wife and son totally out of that, um, uh, out of the insurance. So his, the teen's mom gets into like this huge conflict with the, the gay lover and it is a little bit precious. Sometimes it is, this film is kind of a sort of an indie kind of quirky approach to something that is a, um, a conflict that is very, uh, little bit over the top sometimes but it's it's and it's kind of kind of gets very zany but um it does surprisingly as it unfolds have quite a sweet and moving heart to it and uh, i recommend this this was a, a film that kind of surprised me um and uh, i really enjoyed it's on netflix um and it's directed by uh, newcomer director shu qian um it's quite good and um, another film I watched was uh, Beautiful, which is the um, Alejandro two film starring uh, Javier Bardem that was, uh, I think, an Oscar winner? Um, it was not, but it was an Oscar <laughs> nominee. It was nominated for two Oscars, including Best Foreign Language, Best Actor for Javier Bardem back in 2011. And it follows Javier Bardem as a career criminal who discovers that he has cancer and uh he tries to um he only has a few months left to live and he kind of tries to wrap up his affairs and leave uh something to his two children um and uh it's it gets quite bleak and very just devastating towards the end but um it's just kind of this moving um Portrait of humanity that uh, Javier Bardem delivers so phenomenally. He is just a powerhouse in this film, and um, it, this one is on Hulu. Uh, this was also Alejandro uh, Gonzalez Interview's first uh, Spanish language film since his debut feature Amores Peros. Okay. So that was really interesting to see him kind of back in that um, that field. And uh, yeah, it's it's a really moving. I uh, just devastating portrait of of humanity and kind of that interrogation of morality and mortality at the same time um and uh, a movie that i rewatched. um this is these are all kind of in uh for my pop culture imports column that i write every two weeks um and so this is a, a one that i rewatched that i um Saw when I was a kid. I actually had owned the DVD DVD to it, and this is Asterix and Obelix Mission cléopâtre This is a film based off of the popular French comic book strip Asterix and Obelix. They're uh, a staple of French pop culture, and um they're incredibly p- prevalent characters. That I think the closest comparison to American culture is probably like. The Peanuts uh, gang, for example, they're hugely um, just prevalent. And uh, this is a live action film. This is actually the sequel that uh, I'll start. That stars Gerard Depardieu in um, a fat suit of all things, and <laughs> he does this twice in two films. I did not. I was not aware of the first film, but this is a the film, the only film of this series that I saw. And I had the DVD to this um, when I was a kid because um, my parents were raised on French culture. They had all these esteliques and obeliques comic books that they kind of lent down to me and I tried reading them despite having a very minimal knowledge of French and uh, they bought this for me when we were in France when I was young and uh, this was the cvd did not have subtitles uh, when I watched it so a lot of it was just kind of uh, basing off of my knowledge of French when I was young and then kind of like learning from context. Um, And uh, this is my first time watching it with subtitles. So I wanted to see if it would hold up. And this, I can't say this is a great movie. It's definitely very bonkers and weird and absurdist and kind of insulting and offensive in some points uh i I think um monica bellucci stars as cleopatra in this and the film just like takes every advantage to put her in the more and more skimpy outfits at one point that she's like in this dress when she turns around and like half her butt is showing and i'm like how did i watch this as a child but it's hilarious and just kind of gonzo and all over the place and um Features just like dance sequences, ridiculous, just like events and shenanigans, and just like these cartoonish antics. And uh, I really enjoyed seeing this again, and kind of revisiting a film that uh, I had watched when I was a kid and hadn't fully understood, and uh, now could, could watch with. Uh, full understanding of what was happening.
1: Very cool. Uh, Ben, you've been watching a lot this week.
0: I have. I'll, I'll blitz through these pretty quickly. Uh, A bunch of old stuff. Uh, I watched the public enemy for the first time. This is the 1931 movie directed by William A. Wellman that stars uh, James Cagney. And I think this may have been the first James Cagney movie that I've ever seen, which is uh, sort of shameful uh, considering how big of a star he was and how big of a presence he was in American cinema uh, in in that, in that uh, era. Um, but I'm very much looking forward to diving into his filmography because he is magnetic in this movie. I mean, this is uh, a, a it's a gangster movie, basically. It's about him and his friend who sort of uh, rise through the the ranks and become um, become like the the gangsters in Chicago, the, like the gangsters of the city, basically. Uh, and it, it's it's a pre-code movie. So it's one of those films that's supposed to sort of. Uh, have a moral to the story and like like for example the movie ends with excuse me this uh like a a uh almost like a postscript um like a, a text that pops up on the screen that says the public enemy is not a man nor is it a character it is a problem that sooner or later we the public must solve so like warner brothers at the time was trying to um and not glorify the actions of these characters because they look so cool and, and Cagney in particular looks so cool. Like, you know, uh, basically, uh, during prohibition, like running alcohol and like just doing cool gangster shit the whole time, you know? Um, was
2: this? I just wanted to ask is pre code film. Yes, yes.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know much about that period of Hollywood, but I'm, I'm, I was doing a little bit of reading about it after, uh, you know watching this movie and I need to look into this more because it's really fascinating I sort of know about it in broad strokes in terms of like stuff that I learned in like you know 101 level film classes that sort of uh, just give a b- very brief layout of the history but yeah this is one of those movies that sort of falls in that weird period where uh, the <laughs> the, Haze uh, the code. yes the Hayes code and like Hollywood was regulated um, you know very stringently with like what you could show and what you couldn't and all of that and this is like right on the cusp of that Um, but anyway, it's, I would recommend it, especially because it's only 83 minutes. And if you've never seen James Cagney do his thing, this is like a, a pretty solid gangster movie. Uh, so that's called the public enemy. I think it is available. I just looked it up on, it's on iTunes right now. So you can check it out there. Um, I also watched the woman in the window. And the reason I did this, because we were talking about this in the Slack, I think last week, uh, there's a, a. Popular book that came out I think it was last year called the woman in the window and a movie is coming out in October of this year that is based on this book and it stars Amy Adams and Brian Tyree Henry and Gary Oldman uh, Wyatt Russell is in it Anthony Mackey, and I was like oh cool. They're remaking this old Fritz Lang classic film noir movie from 1944. That's awesome. I'm going to go back and watch the original. Uh, so <laughs> th- it turns out they are not doing that. They are not remaking this old movie. There is a separate movie called The Woman in the Window that's coming out this year. But uh, I watched the one from 1944 that is directed, like I said, by Fritz Lang, who uh, is famous for directing movies like M. Um, and this one is not nearly as stylish as that. It, it, and he also directed Metropolis. It's it's not... Um, it's a very like by the numbers sort of film noir uh, movie it stars uh, Edward G. Robinson and Joan Bennett um he is like a uh sort of a regular professor type of guy just like your average joe who gets sucked into this uh femme fatale's web of uh <laughs> of uh murder and and deception um although the femme fatale in this movie is not nearly as um as uh, deceptive or like uh, interesting as somebody like, you know, Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity or something like that. It's, it's very basic uh, in terms of like what actually happens in the story. Um, the ending is terrible. The ending in this movie, I want to ruin it for everyone just to sort of like. Uh, Like, have you guys all shake your heads in in disbelief that what the hell is going on in the ending of this movie? Uh, But I'm not going to do that. So if you are planning on checking out The Woman in the Window later this year, just know that it's not a remake of this 1944 movie. I still, you know, that being said, uh, if you're I mean, it's a pretty decent movie. It's just I don't know if I can fully recommend it because of the way it just sort of Craps the bed at the very end, um, so that I'm not sure where you, I, I saw that on TCM, sort of classic movie. So I'm not sure where that is available right now, but it's called The Woman in the Window. Uh, next, I watched To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which came out last summer, I think, and and sort of blew up on Netflix. I think. Probably everybody on this podcast has talked about it at this point, but I just was very, very late getting to this. Uh, I was looking for something. My wife and I were looking for something fun and light to watch and threw this on. And it is indeed fun and light and really very good. And uh, I, I want to see more of Lana Condor, who is the star in this. She's great. I was very surprised. Um, that this movie is directed by a woman, uh, Susan Johnson directed it. And I just, I shouldn't be surprised, but just because, you know, when that popped up at the very end, like directed by Susan Johnson, I was like, oh wow, a woman directed this. Like that's such a a refreshing thing. It's just so, it shouldn't be that rare, um, where I actually have like a visceral reaction to being surprised that a woman directed a movie, uh, especially a good movie. So, um, that's
1: going to happen a lot more hopefully.
0: I hope so. Yes, uh, and and hopefully my surprise will decrease each time. Um, but yeah, Lana Condor and Noah Centino are uh, are very uh, charming in this movie. Um, in the film, one of the characters mentions sixteen candles, and they they talk about one of the opening scenes, or the images, opening images in that movie, which is where like two characters are walking hand in hand, and or they actually have their hands in the back pockets of their significant others as they're walking through a high school. And my wife and I both realized that we neither one of us had ever seen Sixteen Candles. And that was also streaming on Netflix. So we just rolled right in. We just did a double feature. And I wish we would have watched Sixteen Candles first because To All the Boys I Loved Before is a way better movie. <laughs> and I know that a lot of people are probably like screaming right now because you grew up with Sixteen Candles. It's a John Hughes classic from the 80s. Uh, and people have like, you know, heavy nostalgia for it because I'd never seen it before. I didn't have any of that. Uh, I like John Hughes a lot. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is one of my favorite movies ever. Um, this one is a, a huge miss for me. I, I think mm-hmm. uh, Molly Ringwald and and um, the guy who plays Jake Ryan. I don't know what uh, what his character's or what, what the actor's name is. Uh, I'm... Frantically scanning the page for it and can't see it right now. Uh, Michael Schofeling, I've never heard of that actor. Uh, they don't have any chemistry and their characters, like I don't buy the love story between them at all in this movie. It, it's its very much like she's pining for this rich jock kid who doesn't uh, know that she exists. Um, and I just don't buy the central relationship that the, that the movie is sort of like the foundational relationship of the film. Uh, Anthony Michael Hall plays... This sort of um, he's like a supporting kid. He's like a geek who who has uh, sort of has a thing for um for Molly Ringwald's lead character, but uh, he's super annoying and like. This movie gets into... First of all, Long Duck Dong comes from this film, and there, <sighs> we could have an entire podcast about that. I'm, I just want to say that's like an embarrassment and a stain on American cinema. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so I'll just leave it at that. But there's also like some weird date rapey stuff going on in this movie. I would just say, if you loved 16 Candles when you were growing up, maybe don't rewatch it because I don't think it holds up very well um, at all. And there, there's really... Like almost no redeeming value to this movie. Uh, I I realize that sounds harsh, but I don't know if anybody if has any of have any of you seen Sixteen Candles recently?
2: Yeah. Uh, if you can notice from my sound that I'm making while you're yeah. talking about it. <laughs> so
0: what it's, do you think, HG? She? Um,
2: there. Yeah. There is a frightening amount of like straight up sexual assault in this movie, and uh, I'm not going to get into Long Duck Dong because it's just he's just one of the worst caricatures of Asian asian people in general and uh yeah i think honestly this is probably the weakest hughes movie uh for just to how um unlikable a lot of the characters are and despite it having you know all those iconic romantic moments none of them all of them really do fall flat just because you can't really believe that these characters would in any way like each other Mm -hmm. or get along so um i remember watching this and being very excited to I was in like my John Hughes phase and being very excited to dive into it and being left with a bad taste in my mouth.
4: Yeah, what do you think, it's, Brad? Yeah, no, it, it's uh, it's definitely uh, dated now, and there are things in it that don't work that you know were m- more appropriate at the time or not looked down upon. And so, but I still think that it does have some redeeming qualities. But there, it it, it is probably uh, the most, I guess, uh, egregiously offensive of John Hughes's movies as far as. Uh, time not being too kind to it uh, as the movie has has gotten older. It's, um, especially the Long Duck Dong character, which is just, ooh, it's 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 real bad. <laughs> it's, yeah,
0: it, and even like the soundtrack, which John Hughes is pretty normally pretty good about having like kickass soundtracks. The music was just pretty forgettable in this movie. So anyway, yeah, it was it was a big miss for me. And then finally, uh, I watched Escape at Dannemora. I finished. I think I talked about that in a, a recent watercool episode. I finished that show. Uh, that's available on Showtime. You can check that out there. Uh, I liked this series a lot more as it went on. I, I thought it, it started all out a little slow, but as it got toward the end, the filmmaking improved. Ben Stiller's direction, I thought, got a lot better. I was I left the show being very impressed with Ben Stiller, who directed all of seven episodes of this. Um, the performances... <laughs> I mean, Paul Dano is really good. Uh, Benicio del Toro is certainly doing something in this show. <laughs> he, there, there, is, there is one... Uh, one, I think it's the ending of episode 4 he delivers a line in such an over the top dramatic way uh, he, he is staring at Patricia Arquette and says like don't tell anybody and I'm like My wife and I had like a 10 minute debate about whether or not that moment was in Benicio del Toro's contract. If he was like, I will take this role only if I get to do (laughs) one moment in this entire series any way that I want, and you can't stop me because that is the only way. Like, I don't understand how everything else in the series (laughs) is so grounded, and that moment just stands out as, like, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) Um, It it, It does feel like.
1: Yeah, it does feel like like they gave him like can you do 30 line or, or readings of this line and we're going to choose the weirdest and most odd one to include it is
3: uh, so weird uh, ben i have a question for you inspired by that statement um i was having a very similar conversation during my game of Thrones no rewatch with my wife but aiden gillen who plays peter baelish little finger yes. on that show i think michelle toro and aiden gillen belong in the subcategory of actors who are undeniably good actors who, who who never phone in are never bad, but always make the weirdest goddamn choices.
4: <laughs> yeah, it seems like they
0: just have to do something extra to to keep themselves entertained, <laughs> like making the movie. That's the only thing that I can really um, attribute it to. I don't know. Uh, but yes, I, I totally see that connection between those two. Um, and man, I, I love – I love Aiden Killen's performance in uh, in freaking Game of Thrones. Um, and then just really quickly, Escape of Moore. I think, Peter, you probably mentioned this, but there is, uh, I think it's the sixth episode of the series. There are some incredible one shot like yeah. wonders in, in this show, um, not only the opening one, which sort of tracks the full escape of the escape route uh, that these prisoners have to take. But after that, just like sort of a, um, a more casual conversation between two characters, it's sort of like a sneaky, like a stealthier one shot that is almost impressive, you know, as impressive just in a different type of way. It reminded me of like an old, um, I don't know, like M. Night Chamelon used to do that a lot, yeah. uh, where he would have a long, long, unbroken uh, just conversations and, and lets full scenes play out. Um, and I thought that Ben Stiller just, you know, I, I obviously the the performances, uh, Patricia Arquette and Paul Dano are great, Benicio Toro we talked about, but uh, I, I left Escape at Danamora really um, with a newfound respect for Ben Stiller as a filmmaker. So that's what I've been watching.
1: Yeah, no, I highly recommend, I think Escape at Dannemora was my second favorite TV show of last year. And uh, it, there's just like the way Ben Stiller films it and it's presented in 235 widescreen, which is odd for a tv show you never you never really see a a tv show uh at that uh wide screen and uh he does like these very interesting like wide shots that almost feel like a 70s film where it's like super ultra wide and like zoom in as the characters are like walking across like Mm -hmm. a vista
0: of something yeah Um, it was like francis ford coppola in the conversation that's what that reminded me of yeah
1: no i i really dug this and i agree it does get better as it goes on but uh patricia arquette's performance is just amazing. Um, yeah. Anyways, let's move on to what we've been eating. Jacob, uh, how has the diet been going?
3: Uh, Very good. It's much harder to diet. You don't have your significant other around. You get bored and you want to eat garbage. <laughs> it's been a very, very, very hard week, but I, I stuck to it. If you follow me on Twitter or on Instagram, I have you saw that I posted a photo where I've officially retired my first gold shirt. I fit into it. I can wear it out in public now without looking... Uh, like I'm wearing a too small of a shirt. So I moved on to gold shirt number two. Uh, so things are moving forward. Also discovered a restaurant in Austin called, uh, Dos Patos that makes a tortilla entirely out of cheese. It does not taste like a tortilla at all. It tastes like cheese. Uh, <laughs> but it, what they do is they flatten out cheese on a griddle. Uh, they make it just crispy enough that it, you know, solidifies, but not so crispy that like crunches and they wrap all of your usual, uh, chicken and whatnot inside of it without without any carbohydrates. And even though it does not taste the tortilla, the, the textural difference ended up being really satisfying, especially after I discovered that their, their beef is terrible, but the chicken is very good. And actually, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a weirdo, so I, I now I'm trying to buy Dos Batos tacos and take them to another restaurant that has better guacamole and salsa and eating it there instead. Because <laughs> Dos Batos salsa also is a lot to be desired. But, you know, it's... At this point in the diet, finding a new thing to eat uh, that, you know, is a nice change of pace is a good thing. Uh, and I'm hoping to find more like it in the months ahead.
1: And I'm not sure if you've seen this, Jacob, but if you go to like a big grocery store that has like lots of selections, there is like a low carb tortilla that is generally sold at like those bigger uh grocery stores i think it's like three or four carbs per a tortilla and it's a little smaller yeah. of a tortilla than normal
3: but yeah, i've uh, had those I, I don't like them i guess i've never liked packaged tortillas my tortillas can be warm and freshly made and, uh or i just or i reject them i i, I really, i've tried i tried so many times to, to like those low carb tortillas and I, I can't get behind them fair enough
1: brad what kind of uh interesting and sugary things have you been eating this week
4: uh, yes, unfortunately to uh, torture the keto members of the slash film team. Um I got my hands on new uh, fudge covered Oreos and Nutter Butters. Uh, they so around wintertime, they always re-release um the white fudge Oreos that are it's usually just a holiday thing that they're around temporarily. But now they've uh, released just regular fudge chocolate covered Oreos and also the nutter butters to go along with it. And uh, they're just come as no surprise that they're they're really good. Obviously, you've probably been able to get you know chocolate covered Oreos um, at various chocolate shops and things like that. It's kind of a normal thing, but uh, this is the first time you've be able to get them like in a store officially from uh, nabisco and they're they're both fantastic. The nutter butters I actually like a little bit more than the oreos but the oreos themselves are good just simply because it's the classic oreo covered in chocolate it does make me want um some of the other flavors of oreos to be covered in chocolate which is something i'd probably have to do myself by like getting out a fondue fountain or something like that like specifically the s'mores uh oreos i think would be amazing if they were covered in chocolate but uh that's just me having a a really unhealthy daydream (laughs) yeah Yeah, you're gonna have to work for that brad (laughs) Um, and then uh, back on my, my cereal grind, uh, I tried two new versions of Frosted Flakes. Uh, they have Honey Nut Frosted Flakes now and also Banana Cream Frosted Flakes. Uh, and the, the Honey Nut Frosted Flakes are apparently uh, a new regular thing, so I don't think they'll be going away anytime soon, so keep an eye on them for your grocery store. The Banana Cream ones are a limited edition one. Um, the Honey Nut ones are pretty good. They, they mostly taste just like the flakes in honey bunches of oats but a little bit <coughs> excuse me a little bit sweeter uh, and then the banana cream frosted flakes the they're they're not bad i'm I'm torn on whether or not like the artificial banana flavor here actually works it's it's a similar taste to whenever you have like a banana flavored candy like banana laffy taffy or something like that um it's still pretty good I actually want would like to try it mixed with like an, uh, a fruity cereal or something like that like something like a um I don't know, like a, a strawberry rice krispies or something like that, which is something else new that I have that I'll be trying at some point. Um yeah, but what, what, yeah, they're they're, they're both pretty good in their in their own way. They're still not as good as the uh Lucky Charms Frosted Flakes crossover that you can still get in stores, which has Frosted Flakes with the Lucky Charms and marshmallows. That's still a, a top notch that, that is uh probably the best thing Frosted Flakes has done in a while.
1: It is weird that they cannot get the banana taste to sa- to taste more natural. I remember as a kid, I used to, outside of like the grocery store, they would have like one of those, you know, machines that you put a quarter in and you get some candy and it would have runts. And I would always have to throw out the like banana runts because they always taste like that fake banana taste. Even though I like normal bananas, I don't like candy bananas. <laughs> so. Yeah. Anyways, uh, let's move on to what we've been playing. Uh, I, this weekend, had a uh, board game day. We played some Key Forge, which I've already talked about on this podcast. But we also played a new game, a new uh, tabletop miniature board game called Nemesis. And this is basically the board game version of the Alien movie franchise without the license. Um it uh The setup is that you're playing a crew of a spaceship who has awoken from hibernation and an emergency procedure states that there is a critical system failure and there are quote unquote intruders on board the ship. The goal of the crew is uh, you each actually have your own goal. So it's a cooperative game. You're working together to try to survive and uh you know, maybe get it, get to Earth or whatever. But everybody has kind of like their own goal, kind of like Dead of Winter or whatever. So it's semi co op, um, uh, and uh, you got to find out what's causing this failure and you know safely return to Earth. Uh, it's very thematic. Uh, the spaceship is dynamically created with tiles, so you're kind of uh, exploring the spaceship, hoping not to run into aliens. Uh, everywhere you go, you can cause noise, which is more of a chance that you'll run into aliens. But there's, you know, you have a dead body. One of the people uh, has been killed, obviously, from, like, a chestburster. And um, you can bring – if you can get that body to, like, the science lab, you can, you know, investigate and help discover, you know, how to uh, tackle these aliens. There's, there's, like, a ton of stuff. There's actually – I posted a photo of this on my Instagram uh, stories, And I got a ton of people responding like, that looks complicated. It is kind of complicated. It is a medium weight game in terms of board games, but it is, there's a lot. I think it took like an hour to like set up and learn. So it is a little bit uh, complex and it has a lot of miniatures that are cool and basically look like aliens. Like, I I don't know how this game isn't sued by 20th Century Fox, but uh, it is, it was fun. I'll play it again, and that is called uh, Nemesis. And the other thing I wanted to talk about, what we've been playing, is a podcast I discovered. I think I mentioned this last week on the podcast in passing, but I discovered this podcast called Podcast the Ride. Uh, Jacob, is this anything you've ever heard of before?
3: No, the moment I saw it on the dock, I looked it up and immediately subscribed because it sounds like my kind of podcast.
1: Oh, it's totally your t- type of podcast. If you like theme parks, if you have nostalgia for going to theme parks as a kid, uh, this group of uh, people, and they have guests I think every week or every so often, uh, they basically record a podcast, I think it's like about two hours an episode, and they'll just be discussing one ride. So like, I think the latest episode is... the fantastic world of hanna barbera which was a uh, it was a uh motion uh, 3D ride that was at Universal Studios when it first opened and uh, before that it was Muppet Vision 3D although they do actually talk about real rides and not just uh, 3D films Uh, but it's interesting because it's a mix of information like they give you a lot of insight into the creation of the rides they talk about uh, like you know with the Muppet Vision 3D they talk a lot about uh, what was going on with the Muppets and Disney at those times giving you historical context Um, but But I think what makes it great is it's just a hilarious group of uh, it feels like your friends, you know, having a nostalgic chat about this, uh, you know, thing that they all loved and talking about their favorite parts and and, uh, you know, stuff like that. Uh, Jacob, I think you would really dig it. And I'm uh, I'm excited to see what you think of podcast the ride. I will link it in the show notes. Uh, What have you been playing, Jacob?
3: all the time I spent not watching movies this past week, I spent playing video games. Uh, I beat Resident Evil 2, the remake, again, because when you uh, beat it, you unlock uh, a secondary run mode with the other character, because you choose one character out of two to start the game with, and when you beat beat it one time, you unlock the alternate version, which is sort of meant to be taking place at the same time as your first playthrough with the other character. So I played it again, and it was very good again, and I want to play it again. It's that good. It's that solid of a game, and that... Uh, confident and scary and thrilling, and I can't. I hope that Capcom either remakes more of The Resident Evil games in this style because it's so successful, or even better, they make more new Resident Evil games that go after this tone because I feel like they've nailed what makes Resident Evil great in a modern era with this with this remake. It's perfect. It is a it's a straight up perfect game. I have no complaints about it. Uh, but after being that again, I saw that I still had that horror itch, so I had to play State of Decay Two on Xbox One which is a game about surviving a zombie apocalypse, except that's not just shooting and killing tons of zombies. It's about playing as a group of characters. You can rotate between them, all different strengths, weaknesses, and backgrounds. You have to go out and find supplies, to go out and, you know, uh, scavenge and explore and meet other survivors and manage your base back home. And, you know, you, need, you, want, you want to build more comfortable beds. You want to build a little clinic area to, to cure people. You want to build... Uh, areas to make ammunition. It's very much if someone uh, took The Sims but set it in the zombie apocalypse and lets you control the characters directly to go fight zombies. It's very, very heavy. Like If you want to play a game that's just about killing zombies in combat, you just hit X a whole bunch. I mean, on the Xbox controller, it is not thrilling combat. It's not thrilling shooting. It doesn't even handle that great. Uh, it, it's, it's a simulation game. It's, it's about putting people in the zombie apocalypse and trying to Make best of what you can find and use your resources to manage your household and make sure your survivors are happy, healthy, and alive. And it's good. I was enjoying it. I played a few hours of it. But really, all I may want to do is play XCOM 2 again. And XCOM 2 may be my favorite game of all time. Uh, I, if you look at my Steam page, um, I have put well over 200 hours in XCOM 2, playing it and replaying it. This is a game where you... Uh, play as the leader of a group of rebels attempting to overthrow the aliens who have taken over Earth and have sort of solidified their control over it. And the game is all about commanding the larger war, where you're flying your r- ragtag rebels around the, around the globe, finding resources, building um, new things on, on your base, uh, managing your money, training soldiers, recruiting soldiers, research and technology, building the proper equipment, and then when you get into fights, the camera goes onto the ground. You do turn-based combat as you control your small squad of soldiers fighting through battles, and it is intensely stressful. It is, it is incredibly stressful in all the right ways because you, in the fights, you want to take these big risks, but if somebody dies in the game, they're dead for good. I mean, like if your best soldier misses a shot, you put him in a bad position, he gets shot by an alien he's gone you do not get your guys back so it's it's, an, it's a game where it's possible to lose you can literally reach a point in xcom 2 where you even after hours and hours and hours you have lost the game your soldiers are dead you're out of money this alien closed in and kill you so even though i've beaten it i i have been trying to play with all the new all the dlc's from the past few years which adds a lot more missions makes it harder and so once again i fall into an xcom 2 hole it is it is a game that I think I'll be playing for literally the rest of my uh, life, and I no other game has has uh, dominated me quite like XCOM 2. I'm looking forward to hopefully booting it up again tonight. Also, I picked up a game called Root, which is a new-ish board game. It sold out its first printing. It's back in print, I believe. It's a I, I put a picture of it on my Instagram because it has the best art I've ever seen in a board game. It is adorable and also just kind of detailed and amazing. The premise of Root is that uh, the forest is at war with all the cats dominate the forest and meanwhile everyone else plays as either the birds the former uh, kingdom who dominated the forest trying to fight back uh, the various smaller animals who have bound together to fight back as well as like, it's like a rebel force uh, Some plays a single raccoon who's trying to take advantage of the chaos to uh, get what he needs the expansion adds a lizard cult who are trying to uh, take over the region and a uh, Beaver business, who are trying to capitalize on the war to make money and become merchant kings. So it's actually medium the heavyweight war game full of lots of moving parts and pieces, but all these really adorable animals instead of like soldiers and knights or 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 like people wielding guns. It's just cats and raccoons and birds. And I'm learning the rules right now. It's complex because every single side plays completely differently. It's asymmetrical so that you, when you so in order to teach the game, i I have to know how every single side of the game plays then everybody else has to learn their side and how they interlock. So the game is going to be uh, very hard to teach. Yeah. So that's, uh, but, to
1: explain yeah. that to people who haven't played board games, that's the equivalent of not just learning one board game, but learning four different board games.
3: Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of, like, probably the classic example of a symmetrical board game is the card game Netrunner, which is a game of, um you know, cyber hacking in the future, where it's only a two-player game, but each side of Netrunner plays a completely different way. So in order to play one half Netrunner and then play the other, you have to learn two completely different systems to interlock. So in order to, you know, understand Root, you have to understand at least four systems. Two more if you have the expansion. So from it looks amazing. The art is absolutely incredible. I can't wait to play it, but learning it is a beast. Uh Peter, have you played Root?
1: I have not. I own like I guess maybe is it the predecessor the game, uh, I forget the name of it. It's a dungeon, and someone plays the dungeon, someone plays the dragon. Do you know what I'm talking oh. about?
3: Uh, goodness, I can't remember what that's called. It, 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 that's a, it's a similar game. It's, it's in the same style. I can't remember what it's called. Future
1: Peter here. The game I was trying to think the name of is actually called Vast, the Crystal Caverns. Yeah, it's very asymmetrical, like where everybody is playing a, a completely different game. And I have not gotten that to the table because of the same problem you're, uh, you know, thing you're encountering. OK, uh, Brad, what have you been playing?
4: I just recently played Magic the Gathering for the first time ever. Um, everyone knows what Magic the Gathering is, I assume. Uh, it's uh, a card fantasy game. And it's something that I have never really been particularly interested in. Um, I've always admired you know, the artwork that I've seen on the cards, and I know that it has uh, quite the rabid following, and people spend uh, so much money on decks for this game. But it always just looked far too complicated uh, to play, and I was, was just like, Ugh, I don't need to take the time to learn this. But a friend of mine recently asked me uh, if I'd wanted to come and play with them. They were uh, getting together. And I, I was just like, you know what? Sure. Why not? Let's, let's see if I can get it. Um, and it took a little while to get into, like watching a couple games and then uh, having some guidance while playing. But I finally got into it and it's pretty fun. It's, it's not necessarily the kind of thing where uh, I like it so much that I'll go out and start buying decks myself because it seems like a pretty expensive hobby for me to get into at this point when I already am uh, spending too much money on <laughs> collecting other things that I don't need. Um, so yeah, it's, I will keep playing with them. Like, they they play usually like, uh, once a week. So I, I said, you know, whenever I have time in my schedule and I can get together with them, I'll go and play. And they they have plenty of decks, uh, to go around that are already put together that make it easy to, to, to jump in and play. And yeah, it was, it was pretty, a pretty good time. And so I, I, I like magic, the gathering now, apparently.
1: Yeah. The expensive and time consuming part of magic, the gathering really is in that like I want to build this deck that has like these kind of cards. So then you got to go out and buy uh, blind packs and hope you get those cards and spend lots of money either you know buying more expensive legendary cards that you know are more rare and build your deck. So Brad, if you're not involved in the whole deck building part of that equation, I think you'll be a lot happier.
4: Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm down to just grab a deck that's already been built and just play with it and not worry about like trying to create this awesome deck with all these cool creatures and characters and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um,
1: Very cool. Okay. That brings us to the end of today's water cooler. This might be the longest water cooler of all time. Possibly. I don't know. We had a bunch of tech problems during this, this recording. So I'm not sure how long this is at this point, but, uh, you can find more of all the, uh, features that we talked about in, in the show notes. Uh, there's a bunch of reviews like happy death day Two And what men want and the Ben's Shazam filmmakers, uh, and footage presentation thing. And also the horror noir, uh, uh, Thing that uh documentary that uh chris talked about you can find the links to all those in the show notes this podcast slash from daily is published every weekday on itunes google play Olivercast, overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps please feel free to send us your questions comments concerns or life advice from chris to peter at slash home.com and uh please head on over to our itunes page rate and review us tell your friends for the word and we'll see you tomorrow
3: hey hey peter Jacob, we don't have time for this. We we do have time. It's the most important part of the show. I, I've been told this by many people, many listeners, write me in secret to say, Jacob, we will never listen to the show again if you stop reading from the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and effrontery by Louis A. Safian at the end of each water cooler episode.
2: Are you sure they weren't saying, Jacob, we'll never listen to the show again if you keep reading from this book?
3: Well, I have opened to the very last page of the book, page 406 from the nicknames section all of you get new nicknames tonight or today uh okay uh peter they call you pie cuz you have lots of crust huh. uh mm. ht they call you plymouth rock cuz you have a shape like a plymouth and a head like a rock <laughs> brad they call you the pneumatic drill cuz you're such a bore oh boy <laughs> Chris, they call him the radio station. Anyone can pick him up, especially late at night. Mm.
5: Rolls off the tongue, that nickname.
3: <laughs> yeah, ben, they call him River. The biggest part of him is his mouth.
0: Oh, Ben River Pearson. That's
3: <laughs> yeah. he... I just want to point out real quick, at the end of this book, you have never seen this before, has a list of other books by the same publisher, Oh no! including 2,501 things that really pissed me off. Oh, a, a Freudian slip is when you say one thing but mean your mother.
4: Oh my god!
3: Oh no! There was a young man from Nantucket, a thousand one lewd limericks. Oh, you got to
5: get that one and read those. those. That, that... The,
3: il- the Illustrated Dictionary of Snark, as well as the Snark Handbook Insult Edition.
2: Oh, that one you have to get. <laughs> Oh. how many editions of the Snark Handbook are there?
3: <laughs> Seriously, five thousand one side-splitting jokes and one-liners. Oh, it has, some, it has some samples here. My granddad has a heart of a lion and a lifetime ban from the zoo. <laughs> oh, boy. That's actually funny. Oh, boy.
5: <laughs>
3: that's really good. That's actually a good joke. Yeah, that's wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, uh, schizophrenia. Together, I can beat it. Ah. <laughs> yeah, okay, these are, these are pretty good. These are pretty good. <laughs> Peter just left. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man.